Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. Happy New Year. We are in 2021, and the college football season, except for the last game of the year, is all in the books. We've made it through a strange, strange year that puts every other weird year we've ever seen before to shame. Uh, 2007, you can take the back seat now. You, ju- you just held 2020's beer, so way to go. Uh, but here we are, everybody. We've made it to the end, and, uh, you know, we had some less than exciting semifinals. Um, I think all of us expected one of them to be something of a blowout, but we didn't expect the closer game to be the one played at AT&T Stadium. So what we're going to do this week, we got three nice tight segments for you. We're going to be looking at the Jerry World Bowl there, the erstwhile Rose Bowl game not played in Pasadena. Then we're going to shift over to uh, the Sugar Bowl. We're going to be looking at the game in New Orleans, the other semifinal, and how that all shook out. And in our final segment, we'll be breaking down that college football playoff national championship game and uh, all the storylines that go with it. But before we get into that, uh, you know, Happy New Year, John. How are things going for you so far in 2021? Just happy to see the calendar flip, to be honest. So uh, happy New Year to you as well. Um, I don't know why you're so negative about that pseudo Rose Bowl game. I mean, instead of the San Gabriel Mountain background, we got a Walmart parking lot. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, you know, beautiful backdrops, beautiful backdrops, um, you know, fit for an NFL regular season game. It's what so. we deserved in 2020 to, to kick off, you know, so I, I think it's probably fitting. Yeah, you know, it, it, for the the dumpster fire that this year has been, it, it it was exactly what it needed to be. And frankly, I mean, Notre Dame actually somewhat stifled the Alabama offense. I mean, I I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that anybody. Um, that would be crazy. But you know, um, at the same time, it, it was you know, solid numbers, you know, 10 years ago on some of those national championship runs, these kind of offensive numbers would have been eye-popping for Nick Saban's teams. The way they've played in 2020, obviously, the Crimson Tide, you know, 31 points was kind of shocking to see, honestly, I'll say, John. Obviously, in victory, you know, you're holding your head high and you're not going to be crying about that at all. Um, But do you think that gives, you know, we'll talk about that more in the final segment in terms of what that speaks about for the final. But what were just your first thoughts, especially as an Alabama fan, as you were watching this game against Notre Dame? It just really never felt like the game was ever going to be in doubt from the opening kickoff, you know, a uh, 17 point game isn't as big of a blowout as, you know, a lot of people expected, but Notre Dame did score 
uh, a late fourth quarter touchdown to change a 31 to seven game to a 31 14 game. I thought Alabama was really conservative after the first three possessions of the game. Uh, really the first three drives, they did really whatever they wanted driving down the field and scoring. And that drive right before the half, Alabama got the ball back. It was 21 seven, about five minutes left. You could tell that that was the kind of drive Nick Saban really halted the troops a little, wanted to make sure that was the last drive of the half to rest his defense a little bit. They had just been on the field previously for like an eight or nine minute Notre Dame drive. And Notre Dame did exactly what I expected they would do. And that was to try to control the clock, keep Alabama off the field. And then on defense, they played a lot of um, deep safeties and kept everything in front of them to try to prevent the big plays. Um, And that's really all you can do. It's like the hold on and wait for help kind of defense right against this Alabama attack so I it was never you know I one interesting thought Zach I had uh you know the lead up to the game the talk was about the the 2012 uh well the 2013 uh technically national championship game the culmination of the 2012 season between Alabama and Notre Dame and how much Brian Kelly had worked in these last you know eight seasons to try to change the culture at Notre Dame to build up their lines and to be able to compete on this level. And the thing is, I think he's done a good job in some capacity in that Notre Dame was much more ready to compete on the offensive and defensive lines against Alabama. And they were much in much better position to compete with 2012 Alabama. The problem is this is 2020 Alabama and you're not going to beat them in the trenches anymore. That's not their game. They don't play the three yards in a cloud of dust field position battle. That's just not this version. This version of Notre Dame would have been competitive against 2012 Alabama, but they've evolved like the rest of college football. They've evolved. They have dynamic skill position players. And that's where I think Notre Dame really lacked. When you look at the other three college football playoff teams uh, to go along with the Irish this year is Notre Dame just didn't have the skill talent, particularly at receiver that you see on all the other teams. And I think that's the next step Brian Kelly has to take to have them as serious contenders. And I don't want to, you know, degrade Notre Dame too much because making the playoff for the second time in three years, playing in a position for a national title for the third time since 2012 is impressive. Not a lot of teams can say that they've been able to do that just because they haven't been competitive in those games, notwithstanding. But I think that's the change that's got to happen for Notre Dame going forward. They've got to upgrade at the skill positions. I think they've got some quality running backs and tight ends, but receivers, they've got to get better at receiver. There was just nobody out there who could make that big play for Notre Dame. They didn't have a Devontae Smith or even a John Mechie. You could just throw the ball on a screen and let him go make a 35, 40-yard gain. There just wasn't that. There was not enough firepower for Notre Dame offensively and a lot of that's to do with the quarterback too as as solid as Ian Book has been he's just not that dynamic quarterback who's going to beat you repeatedly down the field throwing the ball over the defense's head so the next step in the evolution of Notre Dame under Brian Kelly I think is developing um, finding a dynamic playmaker at quarterback and developing playmakers on the outside at receiver because this is a vastly different landscape in college football right now than it was the last time Notre Dame played Alabama eight years ago. Yeah, I think that's a really fair point that you make. This Notre Dame team is a good Notre Dame team. Let's let's not mince words about that. They came up against an Alabama juggernaut that is just 
fine-tuned at this point to do exactly what Nick Saban and his staff wants them to do. And I think you're right as well about that offensive performance. They did, you know, they did kind of tamp it down a bit. They didn't want to show their cards too much once it was effectively in the books. Um, And speaking of books, you know, Ian Book, I think you're right about him as well. You know, he was the type of quarterback, he... Alabama did exactly what they wanted to with him, which is try to make Ian Book win the game for Notre Dame. And with the, you know, with the players he has around him, he wasn't able to make that happen. And even with the, you know, and that that's not to knock the the level of talent he does have around him. Let's, you know, let's not you don't get to the playoffs. You don't get to ten and one without having some some obvious talent on your team on both sides of the ball. Um, but yeah, Ian Book was forced to do too much. He had to carry the ball fifteen times. He threw the ball thirty nine times. It, it wasn't like. I mean, look at it. Notre Dame ran what was it eighty plays? I think you know, to what was it, 55 for Alabama, and Alabama still outgained them, both rushing and passing, you know, um, so yeah, I, I think it's one of those, those stories where Notre Dame is just fighting that uphill battle that every other team in college football is right now, and, you know, they're, like you said, they're built to compete and by the time they get to that threshold to compete, you know, the best teams have already evolved beyond that the next two, three steps. And that's just what we're seeing in football right now. You almost have to be, if you're going to be a school that kind of gets the edge and kind of t- overtakes one of these legacy programs, and it's weird to say that talking about Notre Dame is, you know, kind of quote-unquote the ultimate legacy program but if you're going to take on the hegemons of the moment in college football you kind of have to be thinking three steps ahead I think about Oregon under Chip Kelly first as an offensive coordinator and then when he took over as head coach the reason that Oregon was able to leap up to you know in the national consciousness is because they were doing things that no other team was doing and they were doing them in a way that just overwhelmed others um and unfortunately, we never got the opportunity to see what they would do against a team like Bama because things never aligned during that period. Um, but that's really what you have to do to get to that next level. And I think you're right. Notre Dame is kind of chasing those old ghosts of, you know, dominant BCS teams, dominant early college football playoff teams when we're five, ten years beyond that now. Yeah, and I think that's perhaps the thing Nick Saban's done the best over his tenure at Alabama is being those steps ahead and seeing the changing landscape of college football. I mean, everybody remembers the infamous rant about, is this what we want college football to be several years ago about the up-tempo spread offenses? Saban was asking about that and obviously yes that's what everybody wanted college football to be he saw that and he adapted I mean the hiring of Lane Kiffin before the 2014 season is really what signaled the change and and this is right after Alabama had won back-to-back titles in 11 and 12 and had come 
from a miracle play by Auburn in the Iron Bowl away from playing for a third straight title against Florida State. And he saw then how different things were getting in college football, brought in Lane Kiffin and the offensive evolution in Tuscaloosa has gone on from there with several offensive coordinators, whether it's Kiffin, Brian Dable, Mike Loxley, on to Steve Sarkisian, whoever takes over uh, going into 2021. So that's the kind of forward thinking I think you have to have in college football these days because the landscape just rapidly changes all the time nowadays because everybody's looking to what's next. Everybody's trying to find whatever little edge they can find. And I think that's what Brian Kelly's got to look at if he wants Notre Dame to ever finally summit the mountaintop. They've gotten close. They've been there and they're going to continue to have those opportunities. I really believe because they do have one of the better teams in the nation. Brian Kelly to me is a vastly underrated coach uh, just because he hasn't been able to win a national championship, but winning a national championship is very hard. Only one team every year gets to do that. And he's come very close. Well, you know what I mean um, in terms of how it is. Only one team gets to win the college football playoff every year. Um, So it, I think getting to where he's gotten them and he's been, you know, the most successful Notre Dame coach since Lou Holtz probably at this point. Um, So, I mean, I I think he's done a fantastic job there, but if he wants to get over the hump, he's got to start looking at not what teams are doing right now necessarily, Zach, because by the time he gets them there, who knows the next change that's going to happen. He needs to try to anticipate what's coming and then make that, and mold Notre Dame into that. And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't, but that's the risk I think you have to take to have a legitimate shot there to winning a national championship. Yeah, it really comes down to who's that next FCS innovator that we don't know about yet. Who who, who are you going to poach out there um, through that circle of contacts that's going to be that catalyst? Every team is asking that question except for the you know, hallowed few, the Alabamas, and the two teams we'll be talking about in the next segment, um, obviously. So before we get there to our first break, do you have any last thoughts about the Jerry World Bowl, John? I just want to point out that Najee Harris's hurdle in the first quarter is probably the most ridiculous hurdle I've ever seen in a live college football game. And I didn't get to talk to you about it. So I wanted to ask um, when you saw that, was that, I mean, honestly, I can't think of a more ridiculous hurdle because the Notre Dame defender is literally standing straight up as Najee just jumps straight over the guy. One of the more impressive athletic feats I've ever seen in a football field. You know, Megan Rapino asked and he delivered, right? So, yeah, it, it, it definitely impressive stuff from him. It, Alabama is just, you know, it, they're driving a car with seven gears and everybody else has only five right now is how it feels. Or at least that's almost everybody. We'll talk a bit more about that in the final segment. But let's take our first break here, everybody. When we come back, we'll be talking about the Sugar Bowl game, that other college football playoff semifinal that did not go to chalk at all. So be sure to come right back with us.
Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking about the college football playoff, what has happened, what will be happening soon enough next Monday. And uh, in our last segment, we talked about the game between Alabama and Notre Dame. Did not shock anybody in the slightest. The game between Ohio State and Clemson, they're at the the Superdome in New Orleans, though, John, I, I think that one kind of took everybody by surprise. What was it that surprised you most about this game? I just, honestly, I think what surprised me the most is how lopsided the line of scrimmage was on both sides of the ball. I don't think anybody coming into this game, you know, you and I talked about it being virtually a toss-up game, really, between the Buckeyes and the Tigers. I, I think a lot of people expected Clemson to win, the outcome, the winner doesn't surprise me because I thought Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama, to me, were the three best teams in college football and that one of them was going to win the national title. No disrespect to Notre Dame. I don't mean to disrespect them, but I think they were clearly separated from the big three. So, um, but to me, I think the thing that was the most surprising, like I said, was the, the difference at the line of scrimmage. I didn't expect Ohio State to have such an edge on both the offensive and defensive lines. I think the big thing that really changed the game was the fact that Clemson couldn't get anything out of Travis Etienne. I mean, their running game was completely stifled. He's one of the best running backs in college football, projected to be a late first to early second round pick in the draft next year. And he only had, um, what, 10 carries for 32 yards or so um, in the game. And it's hard for Clemson to be successful offensively if they can't strike that balance. I mean, Trevor Lawrence threw for 400 yards in the game. He got a lot of, you know, hate after the game for the loss. But, I mean, he threw for 400 yards and a couple of touchdowns. They consistently moved the ball through the air, but they were just dominated at the line of scrimmage. Um, They were hitting ETN right away. Lawrence had a lot of heat on him. They couldn't do much with the designed runs for him. And that's one of the more underrated aspects of their offense for the design runs for Lawrence specifically that they, they burned Ohio state with it last year. And I think the Buckeyes were game for that uh, this year. And then obviously Trey Sermon's just emergence in the Buckeyes backfield, the Oklahoma transfers. I mean, he's running like Zeke Elliott was running when Ohio state won the national title in 2014, 31 carries for 193 yards. Just you don't. And then Justin Fields throwing for, 385 yards and six touchdowns. You don't see a Brent Venables defense get gashed like that. And there were several um, film study things I've seen since the game. They really illustrated some of the stuff that Ryan Day was doing in terms of quick snapping the ball. Because one of the things Brent Venables likes doing a lot is being the last one to make an adjustment. So his guys are constantly looking at the sideline, waiting to make an adjustment to whatever the offense is about to do. But as soon as the offense got the play in, I mean, second later, Justin Fields was snapping the ball. They caught Clemson off balanced several times. That long touchdown run Trey Sermon had, Clemson didn't even have, or it was a run to the left, and Clemson only had one or two defenders on that side of the field. It's one of the easiest touchdown runs you'll ever see if you go back and rewind the tape. So I thought Ryan Day called a fantastic game. He put Clemson into a lot of situations where they were, um, off balance and couldn't get set defensively. And I, I think defensively Clemson wasn't quite as good as they'd been in recent years. And I think that was the big difference, but the, the, the difference at the line of scrimmage, I think was the biggest surprise uh, that Ohio state was just that thoroughly dominant at the point of attack. 
Well, and I think it, it I, I think that is a huge part of this story. And I, I think especially defensively, just what Ohio State was able to do, running the ball, passing the ball. You know, you mentioned Sermon, you mentioned Fields. The the fact is, is they had such incredible balance. And Clemson coming into this game, they looked like they were just as rock solid defensively as years past. I mean, they came into this game ranked fourth nationally, averaging four sacks a game. You know, 9.4 tackles a loss a game put them third nationally. This was a team that allowed 298.5 yards a game. They gave up 639 to Ohio State. You know, Ohio State had 254 rushing yards, just rushing yards, and this was a Clemson team that was allowing fewer than 100 a game on the ground. So they took them two and a half times further than they, you know, than most teams were able to throughout the course of the season. And, you know, I think it raises a couple of questions. First of all, um, was the ACC just not nearly as good as it was being made out to be this year um, for the simple fact that it was the only show in town for those first couple of weeks before the SEC started playing? And, you know, the you know after the Big 12 had already kind of delegitimized itself with that 0-3 Sunbelt fiasco, I think that might be a big part of it is we just kind of oversold the ACC some, you know, Clemson and Notre Dame might have been two of the top four teams this year, but I don't know that they were one or two at any point, really. Um, And I think some of it might be a consequence of having played just mostly a conference-only schedule, you know, save one non-conference game allotted to each of the ACC teams. So I think that might be part of it. And I think the other part is, you know, you mentioned Ohio State had so much chalkboard material. Set aside for a moment, Dabo voting them 11th in the coaches poll. Just leave that off to the sideline. And I think you still, as you said, after last year, the sting of the way they lost last year, everybody who was back had incredible motivation to make the most of it and then yeah you add you add a spitfire like trace sermon to the mix and yeah i i i think we read too much into clemson being as strong as they have been in years past because of those raw numbers and um didn't take into account so much who they were stacking those up against yeah, I, you have a good point about the ACC. They obviously struggled during bowl season. Um, and, I mean, this was really the first dynamic offense that Clemson had faced all year. So a lot of those defensive numbers could have easily been fool's gold. Um, but I think, like you said, definitely some bulletin board material, obviously. I, I think Ohio State was the better team a year ago when they played in the semifinal. I really do. Um, I thought Ohio State and LSU would have been a toss-up national championship game. I I really still think that. Um, So uh, they definitely used this game, the game last year, as motivation all offseason, and they were very excited to get another crack at Clemson because I'm sure they also felt they were the better team a year ago and let that game slip through their fingers, and they were able to kind of justify that. 
uh, this year. So, I mean, I expected a good game and I didn't expect the level of domination. I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised to see Ohio state win this game, but the way they won it, the fact that it was really a non-competitive for most of the second half, I think was the, the biggest surprise and never really in doubt. And, and shout out to Justin Fields really gutting it out after that just horrific shot he took to the ribs that, I mean, it looked like he was maybe going to be done for the game. I, I can't believe he was able to get back out there and play. Um, and then not only play, but play at the level he played at in the second half, throwing, uh, strikes down the field. They, there was definitely some mismatches, I think, that Ohio State found on tape, and Ryan Day is a smart enough coach to exploit that over and over again. And, you know, this is one of the, the few times we've seen Brent Venables really be outclassed by an offense. He's usually up to the task, but uh, really credit to Ryan Day and the Ohio State uh, offensive staff for getting the guys ready to play that game and all the little things they were able to do to really keep Clemson from settling in defensively like they normally do. And I mean, I think a big thing too with Clemson is this isn't the same level of defensive line we've seen from Clemson in years past. The last time they won a national title, they were sitting on Christian Wilkins, Dexter Lawrence and Clellan Farrell, who all went in the first round of that NFL draft the next year. So there wasn't that level of talent on the defensive line. There's definitely some, but it's a lot, of young talent that we'll probably see shining next year and the year after for the Tigers. So, um, yeah, I mean, Ohio state six games, notwithstanding, they picked a, a hell of a time to play their best game. That was definitely far and away the most complete performance they've had all year. And it was a good time for it. It's going to take that level of performance for them to potentially win a national championship next Monday night. Well, certainly. You know what it felt like in some ways is like Ohio State looked at what a former Buckeyes quarterback was able to do to that Clemson defense last year in the national championship game and exploited it in a lot of the same ways. And I I, I think it's interesting to think about Clemson because they are one of these premier teams in college football, but they're kind of tapering off at this point. Like you think about Trevor Lawrence in that first year, you know, wins a national championship. The second year, he's a losing finalist. This year, he's a losing semifinalist. Um, and obviously, you're right. You can't fault Lawrence himself given, you know, you complete nearly 70% of your passes. You throw for 400 yards. You, you throw a couple of touchdowns. You run in another. You've done everything you can to help your team win the game. You had all the parts. Um, but Ohio State definitely shut down the ground game very well and forced Lawrence to stack up that much yardage as well. He had to throw the ball 48 times to get there. So, um, you know, obviously that's something to take into account, whereas Fields reached 385 on only 28 passes. You know, he, he hucked the ball up 28 fewer times and this is the result we got. It it was very dynamic. Um, so, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see what Clemson is able to do down the road. If they can continue to sustain these sorts of, um, you know, dominant performances, it, it will be in part because it, it, it's Clemson and the 13 dwarves in the ACC. 
I, I think. And if we do see some of those votes continue to rise, you know, obviously North Carolina under Mac Brown has the chance to continue going Orange Bowl result notwithstanding. Um, you know, Miami under Manny Diaz, if, if things continue to go over the next couple of years and they're, you know, Rhett Lashley is able to get things going at coordinator and get that offensive, you know, unit going more dynamically. Um, you know, recruiting that South Florida talent, they they've got all the ingredients there to make to to get back on the map. Florida State's right there as well if things can turn around. But you know, I think Clemson's banking on the fact that they kind of hit the ACC and they hit their major stride at a time when their conference itself as a whole is down. Um, but because Clemson has turned into Clemson, they don't get the same sort of um, backlash for their conference that the Big 12 or the Pac-12 do. Maybe that's just a, you know, a bitter Ducks fan lashing out. But I, I think it there is some merit to that that we need to consider. Is the ACC really as good as we've made it out? I think you have the SEC and the Big Ten as sort of a, a premier tier that we think about. And I think a big part of that is money and exposure. And, you know, money allows you to make a lot of recruiting trips. We Let's, let's you know, just kind of put that in perspective. But... You know, I think we learned a lot about both of these teams. I think Clemson, as you said, they're going to continue to be on the map the next couple of years. They're not going anywhere, obviously. They'll continue to be in the hunt year over year. Um, but, you know, especially with Trevor Lawrence leaving with some, some question marks throughout their roster, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year and can some other teams swoop in in the ACC. Clemson's rise really happened around the same time Florida State's fall. Yep. So I, not having um, the Seminoles be competitive in the last, you know, three, four years now has, has really changed the landscape of the ACC. And I think there's definitely credence to Clemson having some sort of a free pass that a lot of other teams like Oklahoma, for yep. instance, have been hammered for in the, in the last few years. And before that, when Oregon was dominating the Pac-12, it always – the you know narrative was that they were getting a free pass, but I mean the second best ACC team, if you discount Notre Dame in the last five years, has been who? I mean Miami maybe, but I mean they've been so up and down. They've had some solid years and they've had some bad years. They're probably record wise probably number two. Virginia Tech's been up and down. Florida State's um, down now. I mean there really hasn't been another team you can point to whereas you say the Big Ten you've had Penn State have some really good teams Wisconsin have some really good teams Michigan's had some really good teams the SEC LSU was a dominant team a year ago Georgia Florida and there hasn't been that competition for Clemson in the ACC yeah it it, 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 it's one of those things where, you know, you're only going to continue to be good if you get to continue to play elite teams, you know, testing yourself on that, you know, that, that field of battle. And it, it I, I think part of it is this year as well. It, it, it kind of did get exposed because you only had conference opponents in a lot of cases or you know with the ACC and Big 12 you could play one non-conference opponent but it's not like you know I I mean 
if we learned anything, we learned things in a negative sense. Like I was mentioning with the Big 12 and their Sunbelt record this year. Um, or, you know, ACC teams going 1-2 and two against Liberty and the only win being by a single point. Uh, so, you know, things like that... Y y you, you're kind of in a no-win situation when your only non-conference games are those those paycheck games that you're you're you know basically trying to buy a win for the your team. For better or worse, that's where Clemson is at. Um, but you know, Ohio State they I think opened up a lot of eyes. I think they shut up a lot of people like Dabo who were saying you don't deserve to be here because you've only played six games so far. Uh, you know, we knew in a COVID rack season um, where a hundred and eleven of the hundred twenty seven teams that played reported. Uh, COVID-19 cases on their rosters where we saw, including bowl games, I think it's 159 games were either canceled or postponed. Uh, it was always going to be a weird year. We always knew that this wasn't going to be the same. I was writing about this back in March. This isn't a surprise. Um, but Ohio State proved that they belonged on, uh, on the field at least. So, on, you know, on that note, Final thoughts before we take this last break, John? No, I'm really excited to dig into the national title game. I think we got a real good one um, between Alabama and Ohio State. I am as well. So everybody stretch out those legs, get yourself something to drink. We will be right back with you after this quick break to talk about the national championship game. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We are talking about the last game of the 2020-2021 college football season. Of course, that's the college football playoff national championship between the only two undefeated teams left standing this year after a crazy bowl season where all of the group of five hopefuls that had some chance of claiming uh, the Collie Matrix National Championship or Anderson and Hester's or the Congrove uh, Rankings Championship. They all lost their bid as they, you know, took L's in the uh, final game of the year. So here we are. We're left with 12-0 Alabama against 7-0 Ohio State, the SEC champion, against the Big Ten champion. I know you're really jazzed for this game, John. So, um, first impressions as you're thinking about this game. I mean, when I look at the two teams, Zach, it, it looks like an evenly matched game to me. And I, I think a lot of people are going to expect Alabama to win the game. <clears throat> and I certainly hope they do so. But I, I really think this is a, a coin flip game I could really see going either way. Um, you know, Ohio State just played their best game of the season. I think a lot of the concern over the Buckeyes coming into the playoff was that 
maybe they hadn't had enough time to gel as a team. I didn't give any real credence to the fact they had only played six games other than that, that I didn't know if, you know, they had really figured it out as a unit together yet. Cause that continuity, I think really put them at somewhat of a disadvantage even against teams like Alabama and Clemson who had played 11 games already because those teams know what they are. And I don't think Ohio state knew who they were until um, the sugar bowl against Clemson. I think they really figured it out um, in that game. They know who they are now. Trey Sermon has just blown up the last two games. Just, I mean, he had a monster game in the big 10 title game and he was terrific against Clemson. So it'll be really interesting. I think you're looking at uh, a game that has all the makings of a shootout. I think Justin Fields and Ohio state's offense are going to be able to put up some points uh, I really think Trey Sermon's going to cause Alabama some problems. This isn't the same physical front seven uh, that we've seen from Alabama over Nick Saban's tenure. There's a lot of youth on Alabama's defense that's really going to be put to the test. I do like one thing in difference from Alabama and Clemson's defense is that, you know, I, I don't think those quick snaps are going to leave Alabama as susceptible because they don't make as many late checks from the sideline because a lot of what Alabama does defensively, and I'm going to get into just briefly some X's and O's talk we don't really get into on the podcast that much, but um, a lot of what Alabama likes to do and what they'll, you'll see a lot on Monday night is what Nick Saban calls Ripley's match defending, which is it's a zone defense with man concepts. So you start out in zone, but if a receiver comes in your area, it's man. You go and you match that receiver. It's pattern matching is all it is. It's all it's going to boil down to. So Alabama is going to play a lot of that. That's one of the main um, things that Nick Saban likes to do on defense nowadays. Now, if that doesn't work, what we've seen for Nick Saban's entire career, dating back to LSU and even Michigan State, is if that's not working, if his you know wrinkles and stuff defensively don't work, they're going to go straight man-to-man. They're going to play bump-and-run coverage at the line of scrimmage, and he's going to bank on his guys being better than your guys. Because more times than not, as we've seen over his career, that's worked. His guys have been better than the other team's guys. This would be one of those rare occasions where it's not necessarily true because I think talent level-wise, this game is pretty much evenly matched. Maybe with a very, very slight edge to Alabama, but Ohio State is one of those programs that recruits on pretty much the same level that Nick Saban and Alabama have recruited at in Tuscaloosa. So, you know, what I do wonder about here, Zach, is on this Ohio State defense, they obviously were able to dominate Clemson up front. Now they got to go against the Joe Moore winning award offensive line of Alabama, obviously still without Landon Dickerson at center, but Chris Owens filled in very nicely against Notre Dame and a good Notre Dame defensive line in front seven. So that is a big matchup. Ohio State's got to find a way to get some pressure on Mac Jones to make him uncomfortable in the pocket. And I just don't know if they can do that. I don't know if there, there's no Chase Young, there's no Bosa on that side of the ball this year. And if he gets enough time to throw, I really worry about Ohio State's corners being able to match up with Alabama's receivers. Uh, you know, Devontae Smith, everybody knows the ball's going to Devontae Smith, and that hasn't meant a damn thing the last eight games since Jalen Waddle's been out. You know where the ball's going, and that hasn't meant anything. I mean, Devontae's going to get it, and that's okay. He's going to get open. He's open at all times. And another big potential thing here, Zach, is Jalen Waddle's returning to practice for Alabama this week. And if he's able to play, and I think it's um, 
a toss-up at this point. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't play. But if he's able to go Monday night against Ohio State, that's a whole different ball game Ohio State's got to deal with because then you can't just focus on Devontae because we all know Jalen Waddle can take the top off a of defense. So here's hoping he is able to play from a fan's perspective, but also so he can finish his college career on his own terms uh, as he gets ready to become a millionaire in a couple months. Yeah, you know, I think that's a fair point. I was actually going to ask you about that if you didn't bring up Waddle coming back to practice because I I think that totally changes that dynamic entirely. Um, because you saw in that Sugar Bowl game, Ohio State really banked on making Trevor Lawrence beat them with his arm. They locked down Travis Etienne. They didn't allow Lawrence to get moving with his legs. Um you know, it, it was it in all phases. You know, Lynn J. Dixon only had two carries for 20 yards. In, in total, what was it, like 44 net yards on 22 carries? For, first of all, it, shutting down Najee Harris is going to be hard enough, you know. But even if you do that, I, Alabama just has a different level of receiving weapons than Clemson did this year. than anybody did this year, really. I I mean, that's not a knock on Clemson's talent because they obviously have talent in the receiving core. Um, Trevor Lawrence doesn't throw for 400 yards without having talent on the other end to catch those balls. But, uh, yeah, I I mean, to have Devontae Smith alone is huge. To have a Jalen Waddle alone is huge. To have both of those guys potentially playing at the same time, it's a, it's a nightmare. And that's before you mention all of the other guys down the depth chart. Because, you know, we focus on those two, but you mentioned John Mechie. You, you know, you have all of these other guys down that are, they're all four and five star recruits, right? I mean, this is all obvious talent that's been recruited explicitly to fit the round peg into the round hole of Nick Saban's perfect little machine. So, yeah, I I think that's the one thing for Ohio State. As much as winning that battle at the line of scrimmage is important, as much as, um, you know, forcing Mac Jones to beat them with his arm, I, I think you have to force him to not be able to beat you with his arm to really... Like, honestly, I think Ohio State's best bet in this game is to force Alabama to have to play on the ground more, um, to take away receiving options as much as possible. And that's obviously, I mean, that's the million-dollar question that every defense has struggled with this year with Alabama. And frankly, Notre Dame... um, you know, did as well as anybody else, and and they only put up just thirty one points, as you said, because Bama pumped the brakes. So, I, I guess you know the line on this is you know you've got seven and a half, eight points, Alabama. Um, you know, it, it, it's sort of sitting there as that that sort of golden number. Um, but then you look at, you know, what's the, you know, the over under on points right now, it's sitting at, what am I seeing? 75, 75 and a half points for the, the total point line. Frankly, I, 
I mean, for as good as both these defenses are, I would take the over on that. I don't know how you're feeling about that, John, but I know Nick Saban is a lot more comfortable winning shootouts than he was 10, 15 years ago in his career. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember specifically after Alabama beat Texas A&M in 2013, it was 49-42 to 42 in College Station over uh, Johnny Manziel and the Aggies. And I remember Nick Saban specifically saying that that game took 10 years off of his life because he hadn't yet in his mind transitioned to what college football is nowadays. And I was just talking to my brother about this. We were talking about the upcoming national championship game. And college football nowadays, I mean, with the way the rules are slanted, offense has a definitive edge in every game because of RPOs, because everything you're trained as coming up as a defender all the way up from, you know, Pop Warner football through high school and into college, you have to pretty much completely forget. You know, if you see a guard pulling, it's a run play. Well, now not necessarily. It could easily be a pass play. So, you know, I really think that, you know, Nick's obviously had to adapt to that. And I'm sure that's been very hard for him to swallow as a defensive coach, just as much as it's probably been hard for Bill Belichick to swallow in the NFL as a defensive coach. So, yeah, I think the over here to me looks like a pretty easy play because I think Alabama is going to hit some big plays. They're going to score points. But I also think Justin Fields is going to put up a Deshaun Watson-like performance in a national title game against Alabama. You know, so I'm thinking this game could, is easily going to be played in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, I, I I would be shocked if we see it go below 80 uh, when the final whistle rings. And of course, that means now we're going to see a 17-9 game or something like that. You know, it, it's just going to be exactly what we say it's not going to be. Both teams are going to throw five interceptions and fumble twice. It's going to be something like that. Has anybody seen a weather report for what's supposed to be happening in Miami next Monday? Because that that could really tip it off, couldn't it? But, uh, you know, I think regardless, I would be shocked if, if we see this become a defensive struggle. It's just not the way college football has gone in 2020. It's not the way these two teams have won in 2020. So, you know, I... Uh, obviously, as a fan, I'm imagining you're picking Alabama, but with that eight-point spread, we're going to go with the eight-point spread because I'm seeing that at most books here as we're looking at Action Network. Um, do you think Alabama covers an eight-point spread, John? Um, yeah, so um, what I love about this game, I think, is that both teams are just going to be unapologetically who they are, right? Like, they're not, they both will believe they're the better team and they don't have to try anything that's against what they do to win this game. So they're going to be who they are. And I think that is what makes these kinds of games so special and can lead to what's a classic national championship game. And I think this has all the makings of that, Zach. So I think Ohio State covers the spread. I really think this is going to be a game that could potentially come down to who has the ball last um, it could be a, a late Ohio State lead where Alabama drives for a game-winning touchdown. Maybe Ohio State drives for the game-winning touchdown. Or maybe somebody makes a defensive play late to seal a close game. I think this game's going to be extremely close, and I'm going to call back to the 2015 national title win where Alabama beat Clemson. And I'm going to say Alabama wins 45-40 to 40 
um, which was the exact score of that national title game, just to try to get a little uh, good juju on my side heading into Monday night. But I like 45-40 Bama, but like I said, total coin flip for me. So I think the the solid bet is to take Ohio State plus eight. I think that's a little bit too high for two teams that I think are really evenly matched. I want to say that it's evenly matched. And after seeing what Ohio State did to Clemson, I'm more inclined to say that it's evenly matched. <clears throat> but this game ain't evenly matched. It really isn't at all. Like, let's not pretend that. For as good as Ohio State is, for as loaded as they are on both sides of the ball, like you said, there are certain elements that are missing from this team. They don't have a guy like Chase Young on defense or, you know, a Bosa on defense. They just don't have the it factor there. You know, a guy like Justin Fields, he lit it up against Clemson. Trey Sermon's been coming online does midnight strike on the pumpkin you know in some ways this feels like 2014 when you had cardell jones and the, the the team rolling through their big 10 championship and through both of their playoff games but alabama is much more loaded than that oregon team was in 2014 i have no illusions about that um this alabama team is I, I, I hate to do this to you, John, but I think they cover that spread easily. I, you know, it, what was it that Ohio State won by against Oregon? It was like 45-20 in that 2014-2015 national championship game. I see a similar score for your Tide in Miami when they play on Monday night, John. I, I do not think this is going to be a close at all. And in the end, it's going to give everybody certain, you know, throughout the Southeast, plenty of fodder for chanting SEC um, at every other school besides Alabama. Because if you're at Alabama, you're just chanting for your damn school. You don't really need to worry about conference pride because you are the conference pride at that point. Um, but yeah, I hate to do it, but I, I think they cover handily, John. I really do. And... Um, you know, if if Waddle is playing in that game, that that spread should be twice as high, and I think they still cover that. Let it be pointed out on this podcast right now that is the most complimentary Zach has ever been about Alabama football in the what Zach? It's been twelve years or so we've known each other at this point, maybe even a little bit longer than that. Yeah. So that alone just absolutely terrifies me going into the title game and really the most complimentary he's ever been. So I just assume that our mutual friend, Matt, who's a big Ohio state fan paid him some sum of money to try the reverse jinx. Matt, if you're listening, uh, hit me with a direct message on Twitter. I will send you my address. Um, but it, yeah, it, in reality, I, I, God, I wish I had talked to him ahead of time and, and extorted some money from him for that. That would have been a really intelligent thing to do. The um, thing is, Matt is so realistic about football, though. He'd probably agree with your assessment because he's already been telling me since the semifinals that Alabama was going to, that he thought Alabama was dramatically the better team. And I kept telling him the same thing, that his reverse jinxes are not going to work on me. 
I, I don't even want to jinx them. I, you know, I, honestly, I just want this season to end. I want Alabama to mercifully put the last nails in the coffin of the 2020 season so we can shut it down because... Um, as you all will read in an article I have coming out soon at Saturday Blitz, I, there are real questions uh, that we need to ask ourselves about. Was the benefits of having this 2020 season really worth the cost that came with it? That's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Be sure to read that article when it does come out because it'll give you some of the, uh, the data to really answer that question for yourself. But until then... Now that I've thrown that reverse jinx on the table kind of surreptitiously without even really meaning to, John, I, I, I just, I sincerely feel that way about this game. Um, any final thoughts you want to kind of just lay out there before you bide your time until Monday comes? Yeah, I mean, I'll be anxiously waiting till Monday uh, for sure. It's always an anxious feeling. Um, in this situation, but no, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we were able to finally make it. it, you know, so many times it felt like we weren't going to have a college football season. So I'm glad we were able to have it. It's definitely brought me joy um, to watch this Alabama team uh, specifically in, in, in a time period in my personal life where I really needed some kind of distraction. Uh, and it's definitely been that. And, you know, I would have been okay if there wouldn't have been a college football season, I would have understood it. But I can't lie and say that it didn't positively affect my life to be able to know there was a constant every week where I was going to get to watch Alabama play and win. Uh, so, you know, obviously looking forward to Monday, uh, we'll definitely dissect every aspect of the national title game um, on the podcast. I assume which we will be recording pretty much in the direct aftermath of the national title game next week. So you'll get a lot of our um, I haven't discussed that with Zach, but just just timing wise, I'm sure that's what makes sense. Um, so you'll get a lot of our unfiltered and probably at least from my perspective, drunken thoughts in the immediate aftermath of the national title game where I'll either be just ridiculously joyous or in a very somber mood. So next week's episode should be pretty fun. Yeah, this is always a joy, folks, when we get to have these opportunities. Uh when one of us has a team on the line and we're talking immediately after, uh, it, it can be some real entertainment. And the fact that we'll be able to do that and, and bring that to all of you listeners, I am really excited for next week's episode. So yeah, be sure to tune in next week. Um, we'll be with you next Wednesday with the episode that's recorded either basking in the aftermath of a victory or uh, you'll get to hear the, the sloppy, drunken ruminations of John in the aftermath of agony. Um, either way, it's going to be a hell of a shindig, so sh be sure to be here with us next Wednesday. Thanks again for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for making it through this 2020 season with us. Um, know that we're not off the hook now that the 2020 season's over continue to do everything you need to do um because life goes on and so does the coronavirus so until we talk again thank you so much for tuning into the saturday blitz podcast <laughs>